Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph and Remy Martin. An action-packed an ultimate weekend of international rugby. I'm joined in the studio this week by the former England wing, Tom May. Hello, Tom. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Yourself? Do you enjoy the weekend's rugby? I did. There's a lot out of it. And there was a lot of great tries, I thought. Some, some outstanding rugby to watch. Some, there's a fair few talking points as well, I guess. There are. Why don't we start where I think we should, which is not with England, but with Ireland. <laughs> and before we blather on as to Englishmen, why don't we get the view of an Irishman, Mike Ross, the former Ireland prop. Hi, Mike. Hi, Brian. How are things? Mike, what was the most impressive feature or features for you of the Ireland win uh, over the weekend? I would say keeping New Zealand trialless. You know, I think it was the last, you know, X number of games. They've been averaging four tries a game and to kind of keep them out and keep them from crossing the whitewash was hugely impressive. As a disinterested party, when I was watching uh, the game, especially the second half, I genuinely didn't believe for once, that the All Blacks would come back and do this because I've seen Ireland now over the last two seasons shore up their defence, not only first up, but scramble defence. And when I saw that a lot of the New Zealand ball carriers were actually um, not reduced, but chose the option to kick the ball through and try and get past the defence that way, I thought that was a good sign. And when you saw people like Omani in the very crucial uh, last minute, gather the ball from a yet another sort of chip forward. I thought that uh, that was a job done. How much work are they doing um, on that with, um, well, it's with Farrell, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's, just, it's just a huge amount of work. I mean, one of the key factors I always look at if there's a line break, who is bursting themselves to get back into the line? And if you're not sprinting flat out, when the line break happens, you'll be pulled up in it in training or pulled up in it on the game review. So it's become a massive focus. You know, they, they might they might break us, but you know, if that happens, you have to uh, work your arse off to get back in the line and defend again. And all this achieved without Conor Murray. And I thought before the game that might be the decisive factor, but coped with that. What does that say about the squad depth? It's great to see actually that, that we managed to win it without Connor because I mean the, the perception in Ireland was we had Connor and then there's a bit of a gap and then the rest of the scrum halves but apparently it's not as big as we thought. Now Connor's still a world class scrum half and but it was good to see that we could bring in Kieran Marmion, we could bring on Luke McGrath and there isn't a huge drop off there. You know they mightn't have every facet of Connor's game but 
in, in the Joe Schmidt system, they can plug in, play their part, and he's not really wasn't missed that much. Mike, it's a big season for a lot of teams, and and everyone's obviously building towards the World Cup. Is there a case that potentially Ireland might have peaked too soon? It's it's, it's a long season. There's a, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of rugby to come. Um, but what areas clearly? Irish rugby's in a fantastic place. What areas can this Ireland team actually improve and develop their game? I'm not sure. I mean, in terms of peaking too soon, I don't know. I mean, I remember England went down to New Zealand in 2002 and won a couple of games down there. And uh, they needed to do that if they were to be World Cup contenders. And Ireland needed to beat New Zealand at home if they were going to be World Cup contenders. Uh, now, beating New Zealand in, in the World Cup is a different thing. So that, that that remains kind of last bridge to be crossed in terms of what they need to do to develop their game. I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, the, the defense has been been really good. The penalty counts been really good. Probably want to evolve their attack a little bit more. They're very good at scoring tries off set piece moves. But I suppose uh, if you look what Leinster are doing, I think they think they probably want to go evolve their own structure game a bit more along those lines. Mike Joe Schmidt is a relatively private man. He doesn't. Uh say that much but you obviously know him well what's he like as a coach how does he make things better how does he improve everybody he just has very high standards and he's not afraid to call you on if, if you're if not reaching those standards and he can be pretty ruthless in making a decision on someone when he thinks that they're not no longer serving the team well so I mean he's probably one of the most hard working you know, driven coaches I've ever met in my life and uh that, that tends to filter through the team now he's an excellent staff with him I mean he's got Greg Feek he's got Simon Easterby and and of course Mr. Farrell from your own neck of the woods so all, all of those you know, he's, he's been very clever about how he's assembled his team and I, he's all about um, the team being greater than some of its parts From the All Blacks the Irish back up into the, going up against the the uh, United States is this an opportunity to see more of the players that perhaps we we haven't seen so much of in an Irish shirt because you know let's face it with all due respect to the Americans they they, they haven't actually lo- uh, lost in 2018 they're on a, they're on a bit of a run themselves yeah I, and I think because of what happened in 2015 in the quarterfinal where we lost five or six players and didn't have sufficient backup uh, Joe will have looked at that and everything if you look at what he's done since, it's, it's kind of um, been driven for that not to happen again. So he's blooded players over the last three years, starting to see the fruits of that now. And I expect on, on the weekend, he's going to have another look at some players that he's thinking of will be featuring in the World Cup or World Cup squads and trying to, again, grow the group. So, Mike, now you are the best team in the world and your favourites for the World <laughs> Cup. Um, <laughs> but New Zealand are still number one. Still number one. Uh, you, know, like, you, you could have done it, the English lads could have done us a favour and beat them yeah. last week, but they didn't. So, you know. I just want to ask you this, this: this is a serious point. For so long, Ireland have been much better when they've been underdogs. They haven't been as comfortable when the favourites are going to have to get used to that because they are a very, very good side with a lot of depth. Um, a lot of resilience and they know how to win games. Do you think that change in mindset will come easily? I hope so. It's always very easy when you're as an Irish player to get up for the big one-off matches, but you know, to do well in the World Cup, you're going to have to play really well for five or six games without a break. 
quite difficult things to win because you have a test match every week for six weeks. So I, I think yeah, you need a squad depth because not everyone can play every game and you need consistency of performance. And we're, get, we're getting there, starting to get there. And having a look at the, the Six Nations will tell a lot about how we're preparing going into the World Cup next year. Well, it's 111 years. It's all gone now, so everyone can can relax and go forward. Thanks for speaking to us, Mike. No problem. Thanks. Bye-bye. That's Mike Ross, the former Ireland prop, and I do mean that. You know, it is a different mindset. New Zealand have had to get used to it, and they are thoroughly comfortable with it now. And I think the secret, really, is simply to focus on the job in hand. You know, when he's talking about Joe Schmidt being very particular, very detailed... You look after that aspect of it, then you don't get lost in who is or isn't favourites, who is it. If you set your own standards that way, then you know what you've got to achieve, irrespective of how the opposition play, what ranking they are or aren't. It's a difficult mentality as well, isn't it? But when you've got the players like Peter Amani and you add coaches that are, are giving across the same message, there's no doubt that Easterby and Andy Farrell, they're just as detailed. And if you're getting that all the time, then actually your focus as a player... It just it becomes ingrained in the way you think as a player. So, look, I, I think um, they would have loved England to have done them a favour uh, the week before. They didn't. But now it's a great opportunity for Irish rugby to kick on and really get after chasing the All Blacks. And they are serious contenders for the World Cup. And frankly, if you look at Ireland's record in World Cups, it's terrible. Certainly relative to the strength of squads, at least in the last three or four that they've sent, people have said in, in nearly all of them, that they've been dark horses, and for good reason, and yet they've come short every time. So this is the time. This is the squad, this is the coach, these are the group of players, this is the time to do it. And that was my point about peaking too early. It's all about hitting that competition, that tournament, right in the sweet spot, isn't it? And, and I think the games like this weekend, they are an opportunity to rest some of those players and maintain the competition within the squad, but also maintain the momentum that Irish rugby has. Well, let's focus on England now. A lot of people were fearful that they might lose three out of four, in which case Eddie Jones would have come under a lot of pressure. He wouldn't have been sacked, but he would have been uncomfortable for him. As it turns out, it looks like they might win three out of four, with the loss being a sole point one to New Zealand. Bearing that in mind, and the state of the Australian team at the moment, although South Africa was a must-win because it was the first one, this one is a must-win, isn't it, because of the variety of state of the teams, because they need that fillip of... 3-1, not 2-all. Yeah, and I think off the back of last year's Six Nations, if, if you'd asked everyone back then, if you'd take three out of four, everyone would have snapped your hand off. So I think to, to have come away um, from the week before's disappointments against the All Blacks, it was always it's always tough going up against a side that's a relative, I guess, uh, small fish. In, in Japan, people expect you to just thump them, and I think that's fairly and disrespectful. And there were 11 changes as well. Yeah. Even, even though he was going to pick his best team. You know, I think there are some positives, some massive positives to come from this November, November Internationals, the likes of which, you know, you can look at Mark Wilson and say, actually, this guy is now someone that's probably or could be in that number one back row for England as they move towards the World Cup. There's, there's well, even if he's not, up. you can see he should be a squad member at the very least because he's capable of playing in more than one position. And you know with his game exactly what you'll get. You'll get a phenomenal work rate, you'll get a desire to get back off the floor and to keep contributing. You might not get other things, yeah. but that is a minimum standard which is part of his game and therefore if you can tick that bit off for one of the back row places, 
that's a significant thing. And that's exactly what you get from Chris Robshaw, right? You know exactly, exactly. what you're going to get. He get, he does the, the work that I say no one else wants to do, you know, in inverted commas, but actually he's he's quite happy to just get about his job, not, not, not take any of the plaudits. And actually, that's exactly what works for a player like him. I've, I've stopped actually registering what Eddie Jones says in, in certain <laughs> respects because I think he just makes things up. And when he said the worst result could have been gone, if he'd gone out there and won 70 0 because he would have learned nothing, well, if Japan were playing, you know, as well as they could, that would have been a scalping and that would have been significant. So I don't quite understand that. I know what he means about having to come through adversity in the sense and 15, 10 down at half time, et cetera, et cetera. But. The fact is they didn't quite gel in the first half, which possibly with 11 changes is a thing. What about some of the experiments that talk about um, Joko Kaseni on the wing? Work or not work? Work I, in progress? I think he's definite work in progress, but it worked at the weekend. He's got something different that, that, that Eddie Jones can now add to his outside channel that you know he, he's, he's slightly different in the way that he approaches his game. Any winger that can knock over a second row and make him look a bit silly is quite, quite an interesting prospect to add to your team. You know, I think there's, there's no doubt flaws to a, a guy that's that size. You know, you, you're 17 stone, you're six foot two. There are going to be problems in terms of perhaps getting back and being as quick and as nimble on your toes. But wow, what can you add in terms of power when, when England really need to attack? And that does need a bit of refining, I think, over the next few months, England's attack. But the, the shape is there, and if you can put players like that within a structure, then they become very dangerous. Well, Alex Lazowski was, was taken off at half-time. I felt a bit sorry for him in one sense, because in trying to give a guy a chance, Jack Noel has played at centre, but he's not a traditional centre. And I just wonder, when you make so many changes, how do you accurately assess what people have or haven't done? I think it's very difficult because also you're, you're coming up against a Japanese side that everyone in the stadium is expecting you to thump them. Now, whether, you, whether you're focused on that or not, that, that relays, I think, somewhere subliminally. Sub, subconsciously, you're thinking, right, that we're going to win this. And that, as you know, creates a different mindset. What I think is really difficult is actually when you make changes like that and, and players like Luzowski get an ch- opportunity... He needs to be on top of his game and he needs everyone else to be on the top of his game to, to make sure that he can actually show what he can do at that top level. And if that's slightly off, then it becomes really difficult for him. That said, I think he's a fantastic player and I think he's someone to stick with. And I think Eddie Jones will stick with him. Not necessarily this weekend, but I think he'll give him more opportunity. Well, he's not in the squad this weekend and neither, I don't think he's Danny Care. Um, everyone knows what Danny Care can do. There's no threat to his place, squad place at the very least. You would expect, I would expect, Jones to pick the strongest 15 and the genuinely yeah. strongest 15 he can for this game, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, I think so. And and from that respect, potentially, maybe he's not going to if Danny Kerr's not there. But then, you know, you can also say, well, Richard Wigglesworth come in. Okay, he might be um, greying slightly around the edges, but, but actually his performances are of a consistent standard whether he's at Saracens or England and you know what you're going to get and actually combine that with with him and Ben Youngs and actually that gives you a solid platform in that channel in that area where England need to be structured to allow other players that are less structured to feed off that This might be um, slightly too fulsome but it, it, it's not far off in my opinion it does show that Owen Farrell is an absolute necessity on that field for England. He's outstanding, isn't he? And whether he's whether he's knocking players over and the pride that he takes in that that comes from obviously his dad. Uh, you know, I think I think his 
the standards he set, we talk about the standards within the, the, the Ireland team. Well, actually, if you're going to level the finger at, at someone within the England team and say, right, these are the standards that we're aiming for, it's, it's, he's the new Johnny Wilkinson. He is, he's Owen Farrell. He's, those are the standards that expect both defensively and offensively and in terms of game understanding from the other 22 players that are involved in each squad. If he had that in abundance, then England would be a very, very difficult team to beat. Well, after a long period of success and then a, a much shorter period of failure with games lost in succession, where do you think England are now in their curve towards the World Cup? Are they absolutely back on track or are they still a bit behind? I wouldn't say they're absolutely back on track. I say they're they're nearing the tracks. I think well, they were well and truly derailed, weren't they, after that Six Nations, and that didn't go anywhere near to plan, um, no matter what Eddie Jones says. But that said, you know, if they if they, if they back up. Let's assume that they do win this weekend uh, and it's three out of four in November. If they back it up with a good Six Nations campaign, then I think Eddie Jones thinks, well, actually, we're moving into this competition where, you know, there, there are some strong candidates and England have got a tough group, right? It's, it's difficult to, to, you know, France, Argentina, they're, they're, they're going to be difficult to beat. But I think England will be moving into that competition confident that they can actually get there and do something. Well, to refer to Jones, I mean, you couldn't be absolutely back on track without a a reasonably full squad to pick from, and he hasn't got that. And I think the useful things that have come out of the autumns are the discovery of players who we now are quite sure can play at that level that we didn't know about before, like Wilson and other people. The problem he's still got, though, isn't it? When you're trying to put these together in a first 15, first 23, first 27, or whatever context, because of the very late nature of this, they're only going to have had a limited number of games together. Yeah. which is not ideal. And, and and there's another I guess there's another point here is unless you've got fixtures like potentially the Japanese were for England last week, like America are for for Ireland this week, you're never going to take your foot off the gas in a competition that means so much to everyone in the Six Nations. So where do you get the opportunity then to blood these players to give them experience because you're not you don't want to do it in a in a quarter final in in, in in Japan. Well, I think this series has been the last time. The last time he's going to be able to do that out of choice. Yeah, that, he might have the Italy game. Yes, yes, up in up in Geordieland. But that's uh, I, it. That's a, it's a, and, and that's one game. And 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 you know, should that go the way of the fixture last weekend, then actually players only last a half time, and then that's not experience. Edinburgh was a place last Saturday that was actually in a bad mood, quite rightly so, because it wasn't the usual, oh, well, we got quite close and we're only a small nation with a small playing base. It was no, actually, you know, we blew that. We should have won that game. And I think that's probably quite right. Let's get the view of the former Scotland and Lions lock, uh, Damien Cronin, who's on the line. Hello, Damien. Morning, Brian. How are you? Okay, long time no speak. Are you well? Yeah, very well, thank you. Good man. Uh, A close... Okay, we're going to talk about one or two of the individual points, but as an overall statement, I detected that the Scots genuinely were in the mindset of saying, look, I don't care what sort of playing base we've got, I don't care how it went to the bounce of the ball or referees' decisions, we should have taken that and we're really unhappy that we didn't. What does that say? I think I think you're right. I think I think the, I think Scotland, you know, could easily have won that game. I mean, what the one thing they didn't do is take any advantage of when Larue got sent off. Yes. You know, the, the ten ten minutes in bin, it was a it was a three all game there, and you've got to take advantage when you've got you've got fourteen men on a pitch. I think that Scotland, you know, really need to take better advantage of, of having that man off the pitch and, and scoring some more points. So I don't think they can come out of that on a, at a, at a three all. They need to, you know, we've seen other teams 
you know, gaining seven to ten points when when they're missing, you know, the opposition are missing a player. And I think that's that's what they have to be much more sort of rigorous to make sure they get a benefit from that. See, that I just sort of, I just wonder, Gr- Gregor Townsend is very positive in all his messages. He gives the Scotland players the well, the largesse, you know, the permission, so to speak, to go out and try things. If they go wrong, they don't get criticised for it. But I just wonder sometimes, does that translate into decision-making when you say, well, shall we go for points or shall we go for the corner? Because, again, it's a, it's a risk element. And I just wonder sometimes, you know, I'm a great advocate of taking points whenever they're on offer because I don't think people understand the scoreboard pressure that ticks up if you do get them. And I wonder if sometimes... The decision makers in the Scotland team have to say, "Look, I know he's given us carte blanche to uh, to, to make free and uh, ready decisions, but this is not one of them." No, I, well, the thing is, is that the way that Scotland are playing is the way that Greg used to play. So you've got Finn Russell playing up fly half, and I, you know, I remember when I used to play with Gregor, he never really knew exactly what he was going to do with the ball. Sometimes it was, you know, a moment of brilliance. Other times. You know, as in sort of the first couple of minutes of the game on Saturday, where Finn Russell tried to do an out of the back door pass, and it all went horribly wrong for him. But I think you know you have to live with that. But again, I agree with you. I'm I'm in totally agreement that points when they're on offer they should be taken. And I think that showed, you know, in the game that England played, where Farrell, you know, kicked for the corner instead of taking the points, and England could have maybe won maybe won that match. You know, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. Hastings, if he was on playing fly half, maybe you'd see him kicking to the corners a bit more. But I think if you've got Russell in there, he's always going to be looking to make a break or try and create something. It's a dangerous game to play, though, isn't it? And the permissions that you mentioned, Brian, for me, there was one standout moment. I think it was Stuart Hogg. He threw a 35-metre left-hand spin pass inside his own 22. South Africa get turn the ball over and they score in the other corner. That's the difference of a game. Now, the, the, the balance between chasing a game or, or the feel that you have to try and chase the game because they didn't have to at that point and having the fundamentals of getting out and playing in the right areas of the field is certainly something you can't just say, well, we're going to build a game around Finn Russell and Stuart Hogg, which is all-out attack. You have to have an, a, balance, a balance to that, right? Yeah, I, th- I think you do have to have that balance. But also, you know, to be able to play the, the type of game that uh, Finn Russell wants to play, you need to have quick ball. You know, and, the, and the, what the South Africans were doing fantastically on Saturday was slowing the Scotland ball down. You know, there was many a time when, you know, you'd think you'd started getting a bit of momentum and the, the South Africans would just then slow the ball down. And, and you know, they, they'd managed to get their defence back up and the, the Scottish team wouldn't have anything, would, would not be able to offer anything from an attacking point of view. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, one of, the, one of Scotland's problems has been size and power and so on and being outgunned, especially by teams who are traditionally big men like South Africa. But the first up tackling last Saturday was very good. The contests in the scrum were good. Uh, the breakdown, they more than, you know, they held their own. Do you think they've now got a squad that is a physical uh, match of anything they're likely to come up in against in the World Cup? Yeah, I, I, I think they have. I mean, they were saying on, on Saturday that the, you know, the South African pack were a stone and a half a man heavier, you know, I didn't really see that sort of shown in, in the scrumming and, and also in, in the loose, I thought that, you know, sort of Hamish Watson around the park is superb. He's a very strong, he's got great stature, so he's very strong upper body and he, you know, he sort of is, was, was on par with the South African back row at, at most of the breakdowns. But the, the, the major problem being was 
the amount of turnover ball that we gave away yes. it wasn't necessarily the first man getting there. It was the man going into the actual collision, losing the ball in the in the, the first uh, the first up hit. And I think that's where we made, we, you know, we weren't sort of looking after the ball well enough to create sort of more plays out wide. One of the things that's come out of Scotland, obviously, over the past 10 days or so is that Stuart Hogg's moving to uh, to play for Exeter. Uh, you've got Finn Russell at Rassing and you've got uh, Laidlaw at Claremont at the moment. Do you think these players playing abroad is is adding a different dimension to Scottish rugby on an international level? Um, yeah, it's sort of broadening their horizons. You know what I mean? I, I don't think Stuart Hogg going down Texas is, is a great move. You know, Finn Russell playing over in France. You know, I, I think that's that's what... Scottish rugby needs. We can't just be stuck with two sides up in Scotland. You know, when I played, I think there was about seven internationals in the in the side when you know the, the, back in the sort of 80s, the late eighties and nineties that used to fly out. That we all played for English clubs, um, and I think that sort of boded well for the way that the Scotland team played. You know, we played in a where you had players that were used to playing sort of different systems and also maybe a harder type of rugby. Although I know that, you know, the Celtic League is a pretty high standard, but I don't think it still doesn't sort of edge near the, the, the type of rugby that's being played in the Premiership. Damien, thank you very much for that contribution. OK, mate, no problem. That's Damien Cronin, the former Scotland and British Lions. Look, just one thing to cover very quickly. Stuart Weir, um, an avid and livid listener. Not related to Doddy Weir, he said, but he's the writer of his book and he says... Sia Colossi's cage fighter headbutt on Peter Horn. Discuss or disgust? No sighting on it. Well, I saw that at the time. Everyone was saying on the BBC, no one saw this. Well, I saw it at the time. I thought, um, not quite sure what's going on there. Looked at it again. Didn't make contact. May might have meant to make contact. It didn't look good. That's a problem. And, that, and that's the dangerous area that we're going into. If things don't look good, whether there's intent or, or, or no intent, then you get into a whole different ball game and, I, and of course I th- it involved heads as well <laughs> yes which which is never great if if there is intention or, or, or not so look I think it's we're in a very key moment for this game and we, we want to protect players and we want to give the right message but it's also a, a massively physical sport um, so we need to take that in balance well they've said that it fell just short of rugby's uh, criteria for a red card uh, and if so then uh, Khaleesi is lucky <laughs> that's all I can say <laughs> Uh, when you when you see it back, yeah, he, he could legitimately have been um, suspended for that, but he isn't. That's the way it goes. Wales, very quickly before we speak to Welshman Nigel Owens, it was a thumping win in the end. It was it, it wasn't straightforward to start with, but in when you score so many tries, you know Wales's fixture list in the autumn hasn't been of the highest quality that they could have got, but they have caught with most things. Uh, they're giving players a run out. How do you think they're set at the moment? I think they're set pretty well. They've made some good changes. I think, you know, the, the two centres at the weekend, they haven't had too much of an opportunity in Tyler Morgan and Owen Watkin. The back three looked sharp with Liam Williams, um, Steph Evans and Jonah Holmes obviously coming in for his debut. That from an attacking stat look or look uh, is pretty exciting for the it Welsh. Is, yeah. It's never going to be easy to break down a side like the, like the Tongans. And I think... It's one of those ones where you have to grind out those first few minutes and actually you, you then back yourself that your fitness will take them away and that's exactly what happens. Because people always say, well, you struggle for 20 minutes. So yes, because I'm, we're playing against a side that is intent on doing well. If we hammered them for 80 minutes, you'd then be saying it's a complete mismatch. Yeah, and that's when you get to the point where it is a waste of time. Yeah. Um, you know, I think 
there, there is no doubt the quality in, in Fiji, uh, the Samoan side and the Tongan team. Now, they've got their issues in terms of trying to f- refine those f- fitness levels and get a bit more structure. They've got the players, and that's why teams hang in there. Um, but then when, you're, when you've been playing at such a high level, as Wales do for so long, there's no doubt that you're going to kick away. Well, it's uh, now time to speak to Nigel Owens, the top rugby referee, who joins us as usual. Hello, Nigel. Brian, good afternoon. How are you? Well, first, I'll just get something that's tangential out of the way. And uh, I know you commented on it on Twitter, the disgraceful attack on uh, Alfie. Yeah, it, 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 it was. And um, you know, it doesn't matter how experienced you are and how strong a person you are. When something like that happens, it, it does hurt you, you know. It, it does hurt you and it does disappoint you. And uh, the, the, the positive thing of it is, is to see the huge amount of, of support uh, that have condoned the, the action of of what that uh, of that what that person does, and uh, and I think that's what Gareth will take a, a lot of heart from. Really, is to see that the, the people like that are in the minority. There's still too much of a minority of them that hate people for whatever reason, uh, but they are in in, in the minority. Thankful, and the huge support that he had is is something, uh, and also it raises awareness as well of, of the issues that uh, we we have to put up with in in, in our lives. Just very quickly, a, la- a last uh, question on this. Go chose to instead of taking in prosecution line, he said, look, I want to meet this uh, lad, I want to speak to him, um, and he chose that. Do you think that was the right? What do you think of his approach? Well, it, it, it happened with me as well, but it happened with me when I had some abuse, on, a very different type of abuse, but yet again, abuse on, on, on online, on social media, after the England-France game back in 2015 by a Welsh person who lives not far away from here in Carmarthenshire, and uh, it was reported to the police by people, not, not, not by myself, I was aware when the police got in touch with me, and um, there was the option with this young person, but in all fairness, this young person did message me on Facebook the day after and, and apologised profoundly, so I met this young person under uh, this scheme that they have and um, he had the opportunity to either to uh, um, apologise to me in person or in a letter or, or over the phone and then what the police do if they feel that that's appropriate this person won't have a record for the rest of his life but the police will have a record of that he's done it but the, he doesn't carry the record with yes. him and to somebody who was I thought was genuinely and sincerely apologetic and I'm sorry for his actions I felt that that was the right thing to do and Gareth um, seems to be doing the same thing at this time although slightly different here I, I'm not quite sure if if Gareth approached this person himself uh, or suggested this himself or the police suggested it. but in my case the police let me know and that, that this option was there and I took up that option because I genuinely felt and I know that that young person in my case was was sincerely apologetic so I think that does work but again it's on the individual if this type of young person that, that Gareth is going to to meet if this, if this is a nasty young person who it won't apologising is just a way to get off with it, uh, then that's something different. But if he's genuinely, genuinely sorry for his actions, then, then Gareth's actions, I believe, will be much more positive than the negative and is the right thing to do in that case. Well, Nigel, let's move on to more savoury things. And I know, and I stress again, and we have an agreement that you're only contractually bound not to make comments on either your own performance or those of your fellow professional referees. So we like to keep things generic in this sense. When you're looking for incidents of deliberate knock-ons, what do you take into account as to whether or not you believe there has been an offence? Yeah, but a bit of a grey area uh, this is, and uh, we always have sort of discussions around these when we get together in in camp. Um, my personal view is uh, is, and what the law says as well, actually, is that a player must not intentionally knock the ball forward or deliberately knock the ball forward. So that means two things. That means that can means you either deliberately knock the ball forward, which means 
you could look at it another way and say, well, look, you weren't in a realistic position to catch that ball, so you went for interception, or you stuck your hand out to prevent the pass, you weren't in a realistic position to catch the ball, so the ball went forward, and that seemed to be an intentional knock-on, and some referees will judge it like that. Or you can also have it when a player who's in possession of the ball, or let's say there's a, there's a kick and chase, and the player kicks and chase, the ball bounces, and this player then knocks the ball up in the air over a defender's heads and regathers it to score a try, then that try would be disallowed because he cannot intentionally knock the ball forward, even if it is intentionally knocking forward himself, to regather the ball. So that's what the law says. So the referee will judge on, did a player who was going for an interception pass, or players sometimes we see them now they go in for a tackle and what they do then as they go in for a tackle they leave one arm behind them and swing it round in the hope that if they don't make the tackle with the ball that the hand will stop the pass being made that is deemed to be an intentional knock-on as well so the referee needs to decide on was it an intentional knock-on which is deliberate knock-on and also then he'd take into account well you stuck your arm out to prevent that pass the ball went forward, which means you were not in a position to regather the ball. So it's a high risk, high reward. You stick your hand out to prevent the pass, which means the ball has gone forward and you have to take the consequence of it. So those are the two ways that the referees would look at at the deliberate knock-on. It's not always easy to judge, Brian. It's, uh, it, it is a bit of a grey area at the moment. I feel myself personally uh, that we as referees maybe need to sort of see where we are at with it. You know? But that's the way that we judge it. I suppose in theory, this next contention they're going to put you shouldn't matter because irrespective of where it's on the field, a deliberate knock-on is a deliberate knock-on. But to me, part of it, as a just a general rugby common sense sort of thing is, if this happens, say, near their 22 and you're, you know, they are attacking, but the winger has got 75 metres to go and there is cover, or in fact he stood still and when he gets the ball, he would have to make ground from a standing start and you go for, you know, something there. That, to me, on a rugby sense, means you're less likely isn't to, to deliberately knock the ball on because the consequences aren't as great as, for example, when you are definitely under pressure, 10 metres from your own line and you take a flyer, then you can see what's going to happen. Yeah. But, you know, would you do? Would you ever take that into account that's, consciously? That's a good of, it's a good trigger of awareness most of the time of what's, what's happening, what sanction you're going to give. Now, I think what you need to do here is, is step back a bit and first of all decide, was the ball deliberately knocked on? That's the first thing to decide. So it doesn't matter where on the field it is. If it was a deliberate knock-on or you made no attempt to regather that ball, you just stuck your hand out and hope for the best and it's flown forward and it's deemed to be an unintentional knock-on, uh, sorry, an intentional knock-on, then the first thing you need to decide, is his actions illegal? Is it a deliberate knock-on? Yes, it is. That means then it is a penalty. Then what happens then, whether it becomes a yellow card, depends on a lot of things. It depends on... What, did the team have a clear chance of making a line break? Were they were attacking at pace, which means if the ball had gone outside the player, he would have caught the ball and made a good, good um, gain upfield. So you could actually have a yellow card given in your own 22 as well as the attacking uh, 22 because the referee needs to deem what was going on. So let's say there's a slow static ball. It's, it's just a pass out, but there's nothing happening. The plays are standing still, so there's no line break going on. Then that would probably mean that it's going to be a penalty for a deliberate knock-on and not the yellow card. Then for the yellow card needs to be there was an overlap, there was a line break, you prevented them gaining 20, 30 yards by the next pass, for example, or whatever. And also then the next step then is 
if they thought there was going to be a probable try scored, well, then you have what we call the full house. You have the penalty yellow card, plus you have the penalty try. Just with regards to um, time, Nigel, and I know it's difficult, and a lot of people have spoken to me about it. Uh, there's a lot of footage out there at the moment, and and it's very difficult for referees. Don't get me wrong; I'm not saying I'm not saying it's one way or the other. But is there an overuse? Is there an awareness that you can that means that referees rely perhaps too much on on the TMO or? Yeah, yeah. The difficulty is, Tom, is, we, is, is for us to get the balance right. And I always, I said this from the beginning is when you. If you think about somebody walking across the high rope in the circus and you walk across that high rope and you haven't got any safety net underneath you, you're going to make sure you're damn focused to get the other side because you can't afford any slip-ups. When you've got the safety net over you, you're going to go across that a little bit more blasé, a little bit more relaxed maybe, not as switched on as you'd usually be because you know, well, if I fall, it doesn't matter, I've got a safety net. And that is a danger sometimes of refereeing. If you think you've got that safety net to fall back on, you're sometimes not as sharp in making and getting that decision. If you didn't have that to fall back on, 99.9% of the time, you'd make that decision correct yourself. So we need technology in the game to get the big decisions, which we can't humanly get, but we also need to get that balance right in, in not overusing it. And I think as well, the other pressure here, to be fair to, to us as officials, the external pressure then has come from the outside where most of you watching the game are thinking, oh, there isn't too much of the TMO. And then when we go to the TMO, there's an exception then or for big decisions. There's an exception on referees because you have the TMO now. There's an exception on referees to get every single thing technically mm-hmm. correct. And then we go back to technicality then where, where technically, yes, it's not a try, but... Oh, no, it's, oh, it's a tight one. Technically, it's not a try. But because you've got the TMO, you are expected then to make those decisions technically. And refereeing rugby, you cannot have a game if you're going to go to technical. So the danger for us is to get that balance right. I do feel sometimes on occasions it's being overused. Yes, I do. And that's why we've looked at this protocol now during the autumn internationals of where we are trying to put the onus back on the team on the, on the field to make the decisions themselves and only go to the TMO when it's absolutely necessary, when it was humanly impossible for you to see anything with, with the naked eye, for example. I mean, one of the problems, Nigel, is those who shout loudest about uh, overuse the TMO, those who were saying, why didn't you look at this? Why didn't you look at yeah, that? Why didn't you look at the you're, other? You're, you're, you're spot on, Brian. I'll tell you what you tend to find. You'll always tend to find, when you're watching a game as a neutral... You tend to agree with the referee in the most decisions. When you're looking at then as your team is playing, you have a total different outlook on the game. I'm the same when I'm watching Wales. When I'm watching Wales, I'm passionate about my country. I'm looking at things totally different than if I was looking at it from just watching a neutral, uh, a neutral game. And, and that you can see then is when it's against your team, you want, oh, that, that, that try shouldn't have been given, so you want a technical decision. But if it goes then against your team, oh, no, that's too technical, give, give the decision. <laughs> and we are stuck in the middle. Well, we'll leave it there. That's uh, Nigel Blondin. Owens. <laughs> thank you for joining us. Don't fall off, will you? All the best. All right, thank you very much. Which just shows to me that wasn't a yellow card for LaRue, that's all. <laughs> I, I, if it had caught it, would you, I, it'd have been under the post. The, the, whole, the whole thing about... Um, See, that's the difference for me. You know, do you have a legitimate... It's not just a legitimate chance of catching the ball, 
But if you've got a try-on offer, yeah, exactly, it's a seven-point swing. You're not going to want to knock it on no. if you could possibly help. It, you can all, you can almost see um, Larue's eyes lighting yeah. up, can't you? Thinking, oh, I'm I'm going the length here, and uh, and that's that's your point of you know scenario-based decisions. Well, I'm sorry for these people who wanted us to clarify the offside at a rook, but we only have uh, nearly an hour, <laughs> so we, we couldn't do it. Perhaps we'll do it next week when we've got a bit more time with Nigel. Time now to switch to the Red Roses, which you may know is the name for the Women's England team, and they were playing Canada last Saturday. Pleased to say we can speak to Nick Heath, who I think was commentating on that game. Hello, Nick. Hi, Brian. How are you? Look, let's get this out of the way. A sign of the times, the headline um, out of this is Marley Packer, banned from driving for 14 months, for being twice over the legal alcohol limits. The captain, Sarah Hunter, said, where their support... She doesn't need condemnation from her teammates. Do you think that's a wise statement? Yeah, I should. I should think that's uh, that's probably how the players are feeling. It's interesting actually. It, it, it hasn't been picked up by the media, so uh, I'd imagine that Marley will be hoping that this will, uh, you know, will brush on by. You know, clearly a very foolish error by uh, by a player that England badly need, and uh, and it could, you know, jeopardise things on a work front. But you know, she'll be hoping that if anything does happen with work that she's only got to see her way through Christmas and that she manages to nail one of the 28 full-time contracts that are going to be offered by England from January and uh, it would be a fairly safe bet to suggest that she would be one of those receiving one. Now this, if it were male football, the cries to uh, suspend or temporarily ban or even voluntarily step down would be now raging. Are we guilty of good double standards in rugby? I don't know whether whether it's double standards. I, I think people tend to round on these sorts of individuals almost the more high profile they are. So, you know, if, if a member of the public has, has that sort of thing has happened to them personally, then, you know, you don't find everyone else finding out about it, demanding that certain things happen to them. So, you know, is Marley lucky that her profile isn't high enough for there to be people calling for this sort of thing? Pass a bit to people who do have high profiles and, and you know, have people wanted to burn them at the stake for whatever misdemeanors they've undertaken? Deserve that? Potentially not. So, uh, look, it is what it is. And, uh, and Marley, I'm sure, is feeling pretty shameful about it all and, uh, and is just wanting to let her rugby do the talking. Anyway, uh, on to the game. 27-19 is a margin which I expected to be greater, given that Canada are certainly not the force they once were. Yeah, absolutely. Going into the game, I was I was hopeful because the side that Canada brought over last year, they played a three-match series with England, which they lost, and they were pretty heavy scorelines. England enjoying themselves, blooding a few new youngsters, which Simon Middleton did last week against the USA, bringing six Davidsons out for England. I mean, there's a real sense, obviously, now now we know, obviously, the Women's World Cup will be in New Zealand in 2021, that although Test Rugby is important to get victories, that these sides at this stage of the cycle are very happy to, to just put out a few players and and not worry too much about the result. England will have expected to beat Canada, which they did, but it certainly got pretty exciting. It was down to just a three-point game at one stage after uh, Elisa Allery intercepted the ball and managed to go the length of the field. You know, England brought back the likes of Rachel Burford, Sarah Hunter, Marley Packer, who were involved in that Rugby World Cup final that they won in 2014. But Canada last year didn't have the likes of Elisa Allery, Magali Harvey, Laura Russell and Demerchant, who were all back in the side this time around and, and that experience and you could really see that from someone like Allery at 15 she, she brought a lot more calmness to the back for Canada and, and, and England at times with a few new faces in their own back line struggled to deal with it and, and, and they made a real game of it England's catch and drive and pick and go was, 
was well demonstrated in the first half. Two tries from Lark Davis. Richard Blaze, the former Tiger, he's inherited a well-drilled pack from Matt Ferguson, who replaced Dorian West uh, at Northampton Saints. And then Zoe Harrison, England's fly half for the game, who started ahead of Katie Daly-McLean. She was caught under pressure a little bit, I think. Similarly, Lucy Atwood on her first start at 13. But they seem to be almost a little better in broken play, just trusting their instincts and their abilities in that area. But the last 20 minutes, Katie Daly-McLean came on. England looked a little bit more assured and, uh, and, and any blushes were spared as, as they managed to get another couple of tries. And yeah, 27-19 and, and not too bad at all. Two wins out of two ahead of facing Ireland. Nick, you mentioned some fairly familiar names there. Can you give us one or two who you think both last week and this week put their cases forward? Yeah, well, you've got someone like uh, someone like Lucy Atwood, who who you know is, has been doing some good things in the, the Tyrrells Premier 15s. I think a name that stood out at the weekend was probably Kelly Smith, the left winger for England, number 11 at the weekend. Uh, she uh, she scored a brilliant try where she was being uh, tried to drag into touch by Magley Harvey and. She had the strength, even though she's only little, to, to stay in field. She also put in one hell of a chase when Elisa Allery had gone the length of the field. She caught right up with her with about six metres to go and just a little stop and go from Allery ended up beating her to the line. But you could tell she's got raw out-and-out pace. And we got excited a year ago when Jess Breach was, was running in tries and she's ended up going over to the Sevens programme. But, but I think Kelly Smith is definitely someone whose name we could be uh, hearing a fair few more times. Well, next up, it's uh, Ireland at Twickenham. Their men are in imperious form. What sort of outfit are the Irish women at the moment? Take your pick and have a guess is the honest answer. Uh, it's very difficult to know. Ireland, similar to Canada, were in, were in very good form around that sort of 2014-15 era. Um, and then, you know, very disappointing when they hosted the, the World Cup in 2017. They uh, conceded 33 points to England in the Six Nations. So they're very much on, a, on an arc of, of having to rebuild. So uh, difficult to know what sort of team we will see at Twickenham on Saturday, but, you know, great for those that are there and, and those who turn up after the men's game, after the Australia game, they will be able to get in for free and cheer them on. We were up in Doncaster on Sunday for the game, which was, you know, the RFU's beginnings of regionalising the game. And I think they're going to be hosting another one in the Six Nations next year, which will be great following that French model where you see the towns like La Rochelle absolutely packed to the rafters with the tricolore. So, uh, so England trying a bit of that, and I think that's good to see. But yeah, Ireland are, are, are quite an unknown quantity. I think England should win it fairly comfortably. It wouldn't surprise me if, if uh, Simon Middleton brings back a few more of the familiar faces just to, to give it a, a bit of a settled feel ahead of knowing that their next game will be an opening match of the Six Nations. But I fully expect England to go three from three this November. Nick, that's all we've got time for, but thanks for joining us once again. Thank you. The Man Inside the Shirt with Dove Men Plus Care. 100% designed for men. Well, just before we end today's show, we're going to celebrate two outstanding instances of the grassroots game embodying the spirit of rugby. The names Harinder Singh and Jamie Armstrong might mean nothing to you, but they are both shortlisted for World Rugby Spirit of Rugby Award 2018 in association with Dove Men Plus Care. Nominated by you, the fans, this award champions a moment of outstanding care or sportsmanship at either grassroots or elite level, and you can vote of which of Harinda and Jamie should pick up the award in the Glitzy World Rugby Awards in Monaco on Sunday the 25th of November. The first nominee is Harinda Singh, who plays and volunteers for the Jungle Crows Rugby Club in Calcutta, India. They help cave kids from the slums a chance in life. This is quite literally the case for young Jatin, who after a serious accident only received the right hospital treatment thanks to Harinda's 
Days of dogged persistence. The second nominee is Jamie Armstrong, whose inspirational leadership of Trust Rugby International in Scotland has brought together able-bodied, disabled and disadvantaged young people in a close-knit team called The Clan. To watch the video and cast your vote on Twitter, go to at World Rugby or vote on the World Rugby website, world.rugby forward slash awards forward slash spirit hyphen of hyphen rugby. These are two fantastic unheralded ambassadors for our sport, so do take a couple of minutes out of your day to watch the video and celebrate those who go further in rugby. Well, that's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph and Remy Martin. Thank you to my co-host Tom May and my producer, as always, Avi Patterson. Make sure you're subscribed via the app of your choice and please leave a review too so that more people can find out about us. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.